Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Sarah. Hello, Peggy. It's so good. It's been a week since we last talked. Mm-hmm. And last week, we, we ended by saying we're going to talk about this again next week. Because mm-hmm. last week, we were talking about evil. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> we were talking about, oh, talking about evil. But we were talking about the call and about God is the hunter and being pursued and about love and, and, and in the end, we sort of have this question of like, what role does free will play in all of this? And in what way are we active participants in our own lives versus how, are, how much does God or how much does the universe really control things for us? Yeah, right. So we were talking about like, how do we tell a difference between like a good call from God and a bad call from not God. Um, but that sort of presupposed that God is calling, right? And there are definitely different ways to understand God's involvement in human experience, right? So there are folks who absolutely believe in God as an intervening, active like force in the world, right? Um, and often the term that gets used for those folks is theist, as opposed to deists who believe that God creates, but then kind of goes, all right, my work is done. I have created you, do your thing, right? Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting, the question of free will comes up certainly in Christianity, like over and over again in different traditions. Um, and we were talking just earlier, we both had a sort of similar story. Um, my father's father died when my dad was quite young. Well, not in his teens, but too young, right? And all around him in this very Catholic Italian like community and family were folks going, it's God's will. God wants him in heaven. And my, you know, teenage dad was like, that's dumb, (laughs) right? Like his sort of feeling was that's what God would want to take my father from me, right? Um, And it, and it lost Catholicism, my father, right? He was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, But that is one position that people take, right? Is that God has a plan. God's will is clear. Anything that happens is God's decision and determination in the world and we just give over to it right well there's something so comforting about that I mean I think that the experience of being alive outside of story right we've talked about narratives and outside of all of these meaning making things can be we can feel really untethered and the idea that there is some benevolent loving intelligent detail-oriented force in the world who is paying that much attention and to us, to our every move is comforting because otherwise it feels like we're just spinning out of control. So, I mean, you know, I had the same kind of story with my father and he had the same experience. He was 10, his mother died 
and and the experience for him was like that's not comforting that that doesn't actually lead me to feel like i've been wrapped around you know there's a big blanket around me from some god who's making everything okay because this really sucks this is awful this is you know so so it's not a big safe world yeah that question of like safety and comfort right like i remember being young and sort of um, like my dad or others that I knew who were, who were sort of atheist or at least agnostic would be like, it's all just random. And like, there is something kind of terrifying about the idea of like utter randomness in the world and in our experience. But I will also say that as I've gotten older, um, the randomness maybe scares me a little bit less, but more than that, um, I'm going to go ahead and make a very strange comparison, but I really want you to hang with me for a second. So, um, in our house, we do Santa right? We, we, um, Santa is a, is a myth that we embrace. Um, my oldest has now learned what Santa is, but the younger ones are still. And at one point during this past Christmas season, one of my little ones was like, Santa's like God. And I was like, okay, that's actually like a really accurate theological assessment because in our house, we talk about Santa as like, it doesn't matter. Like Santa is going to give presents to everyone, right? We don't do the like, only if you're good. Right. So stick with me because we believe, right, as universalists, that God loves everyone. Right. So what what I resist in the Santa myth is the idea that, like, if you're naughty, you're going to get cold. So I resist similarly in any depiction of God, the idea that the fact that you got cancer means that, like, God is mad at you. Right. Or you're right. So there's because there's this twist that happens. Right. Sometimes the energy is this terrible thing that happened to me. I can accept because I can see a long plan of God's, right? But there's also this other twist of energy that's like this bad thing that happened to me or to someone else is punishment because I'm somehow deficient or naughty or whatever, right? And so I get really squirrely when God's gifts or punishments, right? If, if that's how we're interpreting the events of our lives, right? Is either God is happy with me or God is mad at me or... I'm good or I'm bad because of the things that are happening to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, well, that was the, you know, when the Puritans arrived and they are bringing their Calvinism with them, right? The idea was we are predestined. We're predestined for greatness. This new nation is predestined for greatness. It justified a lot of horrific behavior. And there was a way of saying, if something terrible has happened to you, it's because you weren't part of the chosen. So. I, you know, translating to now, if you don't have a home, you don't have an income, then you're just not part of the chosen people. And there isn't anything we can do, right? God has pre-sorted all the souls. Now, and when Calvin came up with this idea, for him, it was actually a fairly positive step because his, his experience was everyone I know is saved, right? We're all like, we are all saved. and we've all been predestined and we are all safe. I mean, it was sort of this almost a precursor to universalism, but the other side of it was not everyone is saved. So, so then you start looking at, well, who isn't? And then if you're suffering, well, then you're not. Right, and it's that, it's the weaponizing of human experience as somehow an indicator of God's 
love for you or appreciation for you right like and that's like that's like why it relates to me for like santa because i feel like it's this weaponizing of this thing that that actually because what got me there was um some conversation years and years ago about well all the kids whose parents can't afford to buy them toys does that mean that santa doesn't like care about them or that they're all naughty right and it's it's the same thing right so someone who's struggling with infertility or someone whose father dies young like does that mean that god doesn't care about that person and what happens to them in their life right and it just that drives me nuts so i can't get excited about like a super sort of theistic perspective that puts everything into god's hands well i mean it's the same thing i would cringe we don't hear this so much anymore but when the towers came down and so many people I know and love who were supposed to be there who weren't, and how many of them would say, God was looking out for me. And the fury for me of, so God wasn't looking out for the 3000 people who did show up for work this morning, who went to that meeting, who didn't somehow get the memo that they were gonna die today. So infuriating but that but it's the logical conclusion right and people who say it would say oh my god that's not what i mean but but that is what you're saying right that god didn't you didn't get on the plane that crashed so god loves you and all the people who did somehow this wasn't their day well and this is i actually think because yeah i think you're 100 right nine out of ten of those people would be like, no, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I meant, right? But, but this is part of the problem. And this is, I think what we're gonna come back to again and again this season is that people don't actually think through all of the implications of their theological stance. And the reality is it matters, right? Because it matters when you go around saying, well, I, God protected me that morning, right? Like in your mind, maybe that's all just positive, like my relationship to God and God loves me, but like anyone who's listening is going to have like, you know, so I just think that um, if nothing else this season, if we get folks to think about like the ways that their position on God or their belief about God plays out both for themselves and for others and the way they interact in the world, then that would be worthwhile, you know? Um, well, and it comes back to larger questions of justice. Right, so it becomes easy to justify. I mean, we go back to the you know, founding of the country and the way then that the indigenous people were treated. You know, well, I was, I was chosen and I was saved and you were not. And so we can give you smallpox, we can drive you off your land and we can starve you out and we can lie, cheat, steal because you're not part of this, this in group. I mean, you, so even if you're not consciously aware of what the implications are, we live out of those implications all the time, from the very small to the very big, right? Well, God found me a parking spot. Well, now someone else is circling the neighborhood. You know? I mean, so which is why I always come back to this idea that there is no sugar daddy in the sky. And there is nobody who is making sure that you get the right parking space, that we are we are not being um, controlled, that there, we do actually have free will. And, and I you know, was saying earlier, I actually think that as comforting as some of this is, I think it's more comforting to know that, that, that the question isn't, do we have free will or is, is there a plan for me? I think, I think we're not asking the right question. I think the right question really is, 
about accompaniment. I think that the promise of scripture is not, I'm going to make everything okay. Whatever it is that happens, it's all going to be part of a plan. You don't find that in scripture. What you find is where two or three are gathered, there I will be. The, the promise is, is presence. It's community. It's about being together. It's when you are with each other, the holy is with you. The divine is with you. So what it is you're doing is still up to you, but we make our decisions based on, on what's real, which is that we are standing on sacred ground and that we are, we are working with each other in ways that should be holy, that should reflect that reality. I think that piece about accompaniment is really important, right? Um, I think it gets distorted a lot through time in Christianity. I mean, we're talking primarily about Christianity right now, right? Um, but the reality is that like religion, ritual, um, all of that stuff, like if you look back at, you know, various sort of sociologists of religion, if you look at like William James and you look at Durkheim, you're going to find that part of what they, as they were literally creating the category of religion, right, the sort of academic category of religion, what they were recognizing was not yeah, there's a piece that's about the supernatural for sure. But even more than that, there was the recognition of what happens when people are together and community is formed and community ritual is engaged in. Because at the end of the day, exactly what you're saying, right? The point is not, you know, we, we sort of, God exists in our imagination and in whatever way that's real for us as, a, as an orienting factor or a explanatory factor or something, right? But that what we feel in our lives is sort of this um, relational quality, maybe with that God, but also with each other, and that there's a thing that happens human to human, right? Like I'm, I'm over here with the sort of like humanistic kind of perspective, but there's a, there's a thing that happens human to human that is exactly that piece about witness and presence and not that everything's great, right? I was just talking to um, a new friend the other day and they were describing um, having grown up sort of Midwest and like that, that in their family system, right? Everything was silver lined, which is a phrase that comes from Brene Brown, right? But that like something bad would happen and the family would be like, but this part is good or but this thing is great. And it's this fascinating impulse that, you know, maybe somewhat Western European or even American in its nature, but this impulse to like make everything okay or good, when in fact, like life sucks a lot of the time and it's not okay and good a lot of the time, right? So I think that we've, we've, we've lost that sort of like, the point is that we come together and we help each other through the bad things, not that we make the bad things good. So, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I feel like we do that with the pandemic lately that we we sort of gloss over that more than half a million people are dead and shift to what have you learned and you know like which isn't bad I mean there's there actually have been really amazing powerful lessons and transformations culturally for us over this last year but we don't sit with grief very well we, we don't handle uh, another person's pain i mean we go so quickly to what's going to be okay right i mean if i when i first started in ministry a thousand years ago and i was working with homeless and runaway kids and one of the things that i learned right from the start was that you never tell anyone it's going to be okay first of all it may not it really may not be okay 
and that the people I was working with were in crisis. I was doing crisis work supervision and, and the when someone is in crisis, what they actually need is to know that you can feel what they feel, that you hear the feelings. And we don't do that. We just don't, we go so quickly, you know, my father died and the response is, you know, I'm so sorry, you know, now he's with, you know, in God, in heaven with God, or, you know, everything's gonna be okay and you're gonna feel better soon and let's go get a beer. I mean, it's just like very, um, we don't know how to do it. We just don't. It reminds me of our one of our earlier episodes, actually. I feel like season one, maybe, where we talked about exactly this, like that we don't do grief well, right? And I, I'm, I'm feeling like intrigued um, that we've gone to this place of like grief and bad things, actually. Um, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily there in my head when I was thinking about free will, but I do think that there is a real connection because ultimately what we're talking about is sort of the nature of human existence and how we accept responsibility or how we live with the reality of the nature of human experience versus what we push out and push off, right? So um, every time we've talked about this episode, I think of that song and I cannot remember who it Who's that girl who won American Idol early on? Just a country singer. I feel like it's her. Carrie Underwood, is that her? And it's this song, like, Jesus Take the Wheel, right? And so when I hear that song, like, I do not like this song, I will admit. Um, but I always, what I think about is the question of personal responsibility and the relationship of, like, how do I live in my life, take responsibility for my life, right? And, and then community and God right? Like, here's me. And like, how do I deal with these other pieces? And, and where do I, because it's great to be like, something wonderful happened to me and that was God, but something bad happened and that's just humans, right? Like, there's a lot of ways that people do these gymnastics to keep God as like this thing that's only ever good to them or loves them, right? Do you know, it's sort of, it gets cold. Yeah. I, I wonder though, if people who default to the idea that God has a plan if if those are often people who feel God's love who sort of exist in a world where God is loving and the world is safe and it does provide some sense of um, sort of a communal agreement around why we can exist in a world that feels good that feels okay I mean, even, uh, even people who are existing in the world with serious levels of oppression will default to this idea that God has a plan. And I, I, think, I think that there's a way of sort of um, explaining the experience of being okay, even when things are really terrible. Right? That it's a way of, of feeling hopeful, feeling grounded, feeling um, protected, but also a way of naming the actual, the actual experience of being okay, that we, even when we are terribly uh, oppressed, even when we are grieving, even when things are bad, humans have this stunning capacity for balance. So there's a way of sort of projecting that out into the world and saying, well, we are, we are being held. Yeah, so it's interesting. You're touching on something that we're going to come back to in a later episode, which is this question of sort of um, divine as liberator or sort of the relationship between the divine and oppression. 
Um, because I think that's, you know, you're sort of right, you're right there on that point about like how do folks who are living with consistent and constant oppression, like embrace God and sort of understand their place in the world. Um, but I think what you just said is really interesting, right? I got to think a little bit about it, this point of like, so there's something in like, things are terrible. Okay, I got it. I got it. Here's what I object to, right? I'm all for balance and I'm all for the like deep wellspring within ourselves of faith, of hope, of whatever that goes. Things are totally shitty, but they're going to be okay in some ontological sense, right? Because you're right. What you were sort of taught or you learned quickly not to say to those homeless runaway youth is that things are going to be fine because they're not necessarily going to be fine right here and now in this place, but that there's maybe some greater sense of like life as infused with love and care and something positive, right? But see, even there, I get a little bit uncomfortable. You could see my face. I get a little bit uncomfortable because we all know people whose lives are extremely challenging, right? And how dare I would go to say to them, like, everything's okay. Like, you're going to be okay. You know, like, I just can't. Yeah, that, no, that's not what I'm saying, though. What I'm saying is that even when things are really terrible, um, we can still access the experience of being loved. Agreed. So yeah. in that experience, and that experience might, might not be immediately coming from a human being, right? We just are living in a world that in which we simultaneously experience pain and love and and that the explanation for that is the creation of this external being who is going to make it okay and what i would say is we don't have to take that extra step to anthropomorphize the experience of love and instead can say that love exists in the world and I am tapped into it even while I suffer, even while I grieve, even while I'm angry, that I can still feel grounded in some way and something that's also beautiful, which doesn't make it okay, right? It's not okay. The, the experience of suffering remains very real. Yeah, so that's, okay, that's, yeah, I think actually we agree 100% on that, right? Like that, that there is, even in suffering and grief, there is belovedness, right? Which is exactly why, and I suspect you probably do the same thing, at least periodically, I say to my congregation, like, you are loved. I don't say, like, God loves you, or everything's going to be fine, or you're okay, no matter what. I say this other thing, right, about their belovedness, which is, which is, you're right, it's not, it does not necessitate that next step into just because you're loved, everything's going to be perfect, right? Because any of us who've ever loved anyone know that while our love is extremely powerful, our love doesn't make everything okay. It doesn't make everything perfect. It doesn't erase suffering, right? We love through suffering. We love people through their grieving. We don't fix their grieving or their suffering by loving them, right? Um, so yeah, actually, I think we both, we both agree on that as it as it happens. Um, so I guess then, you know, this question of like free will again, um, I think you and I would both agree just like flat out humans have free will. There's no, you know, there's no other entity like running the show for us. Um, which I suppose we both get 
mainly from our traditions? Well, I mean, you know, I grew up in a family of, on the one hand, we're the Italian Catholics, but with the experience of my father having lost his mother. And, and on the other hand, I grew up with a lot of atheist Jews who became atheist after pogroms and concentration camps. Like there, there was no evidence of a God in any way that God had been explained to them. So in, in either case, right? In either tradition, either the Catholic or the Jew, that God just, there, there was no reason to believe that that was true. So free will became the only real explanation. And then that humans have free will, that sometimes humans behave really badly and sometimes humans suffer as a result of it. And that there was nothing else in the world that was the extent of reality. And there are certainly plenty of religious leaders through the ages who would say, you know, that's all you really even need to know. I mean, you know, if there's a, if you got shot with an arrow, you know, don't ask where the arrow came from, simply pull it out of your back. Or, you know, Confucius, you know, why talk about heaven when you don't even know things of earth? Right? Like, try to, let's focus. <laughs> focus people. <laughs> right? I mean, both the Buddha and Confucius, right? That this idea that, like, where are you going with the questions? We've got things to handle. And I think my family, neither Buddhist or Confucian, felt the same way. Like, we've got real world things. So the free will, um, I mean, free will made a lot of sense and was part of the experience. I also think that free will is an interesting defense of God. Like, well, how does the Holocaust happen? Well, people have free will. So God may be all loving and, you know, good and benevolent and, and yet God loved us enough just like you love any teenager you're giving, you know, car keys to, at some point you say, well, you're gonna have to just figure this out on your own, make good choices. So there's a sort of parental like God who's just sending us out and that that, that, that itself is an act of love, that God sends us out to do the human thing, you know, it is interesting, right? Because we did last week, we did come to this place of talking about how you discern that call and how you answer it, right? Are you answering a good call or a bad call? And this question of evil is where you sort of started us today. Um, and, and free will engages that question again, exactly because if we have free will, then we have the free will to do bad, bad things, right? Um, and that my family also, we have very similar family makeups, Peggy, actually. Um, and, and like my Jewish side of the family too, right? Is like largely atheistic, you know? Um, and part of that is exactly because how do you say with a straight face, God's will was to, you know, kill 6 million plus people, right? So there's, um, there's this interesting part around like, so if I have free will, right? Then I have choices to make in the world, right? About whether I'm doing good or I'm doing ill. Right. I don't get to blame it on God or on hell or, or uh, the devil rather, right? I don't get to say like Satan like crept into my brain and maybe do it, right? Like I'm making choices and it comes back to that personal responsibility. Um, but it is, 
that question of evil is one I feel like we actually don't in our shared Unitarian Universalism, we don't really talk well about, like we don't address it very well. Um, the sort of human propensity for evil. We get kind of like lost in that place of like love and like justice and we don't really ever dig into like sin is real and sin is, you know, the the separation of humans by willful activity, right? Or the, the sort of the um, denying of wholeness of others, right? Um, whatever form that might take. Uh, so I do, I come back to that question of evil a lot, I guess. Um, and it's going to be interesting to think about it with free will too. Um, I've been preaching on this more actually, on sin and evil. It feels very present to me and we don't like talking about it. We get this um, like knee jerk reaction, the word sin, like somehow you're a sinner without really understanding the word or understanding that we are in fact, when we create theologies of social justice, while we're avoiding the word sin and sinfulness, we're actually responding to it. So we're creating whole communities around sinfulness and around approaching it, breaking it, moving through it, transforming it without ever really acknowledging it. Sort of a whole liberal thing, I think. It's not just you use, I think. Yeah, it's I think it's not just us, yes, absolutely. And I do, I think that like, there's a lot of fear of that word because of the potential theological implications, right? Like if I use that word, then that must imply that I believe in a God that's gonna like punish me for my sins or a hell that's gonna like, where I'm gonna do penance for, you know, millennia or whatever, right? Um, and for me, I just, I, I find that all of these words, right? Sin and worship and whatever, like all of these sort of words that are, are associated with religion and the holy and the spiritual, there's ways to understand them that don't ne like necessarily imply all of these extra things, right? Like we're super proud as Unitarian Universalists, we're like super proud that we don't believe in original sin, right? But like sin doesn't just mean original sin, right? It's, it's a much bigger word and it doesn't have to mean anything about heaven or hell. It just means things about what we do now here with and to each other, right? Um, yeah, I think there's, I just, um, there's so much that's here about responsibility. Um, so we know that next week we're talking about divine and power. Yeah. And I think this moves really beautifully into that because there is this question of who has the power. Right. And, right. So if we're talking about free will or is the power on us or is there, is there a force? Yeah. Yeah, that question of like, if, if the responsibility and empowerment kind of go hand in hand, right? That there's, um, yeah, that's interesting. Okay, this is gonna be fun. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is another to be continued. I think there's like no way for it not to all just be to be continued. But I mean, that's sort of the cool, beautiful thing about it, right? That we're saying God is is multifaceted, multidimensional. There are so many ways, so many faces and personalities and ways of understanding this. So next week we're gonna continue this conversation and move into yet another way of understanding. Excellent. Good to see you. You too. Thanks, Peggy. Bye.